know, the, the future I'm def desperate to see is the, the human world uh, remember it, remembering it's part of the natural world and working in harmony with it and that, at, at that very high level. And, you know, now there's so many of us, um, 8 billion people, that means making cities work. Hello everyone and welcome to FutureX, a podcast by Martin Hearn, Event Director, FutureBuild and co-host Dr. Oliver Jones, Research Director at Rider Architecture. FutureX will bring together some of the brightest minds and some of the most disruptive thinkers and innovators to transform the construction industry and build a FutureX community of like-minded people that can begin to make a real change. We really hope you enjoy the series. Hello and welcome to FutureX. I'm Martin Hearn, Event Director of FutureBuild and once again I'm privileged to be joined by my co-host Dr Oliver Jones at Rider Architecture. Oliver, this week we've got someone I've worked with for, for many years actually. We've got Duncan Baker-Brown. Um, Duncan has been a huge supporter to EcoBuild and FutureBuild over the years and in fact back in 2013 built us a massive waste totem um, and has then gone on and helped us curate uh, many of the waste zones that we've had. And I'm very pleased to say, actually, we've got him back this year on our seminar program, given a masterclass. Um, but yeah, you know, his work, he's an academic, he's an activist, he's an expert in closed loop systems, circularity, reuse, obviously an author as well. Um, so you architects are busy people. <laughs> I'm, I'm so glad that we're talking to Duncan uh, Martin. He... I've followed his work for quite some time. He's, he's, you know, I've been really looking forward to getting him on the, on the podcast and his book, The Waste Atlas, I think, what was it, 2017 that it was released? Yeah. You know, that, that thing's a, a staple on the desk and I'm super excited that he's got another one in the works. So it was just a really good opportunity to talk to him. And I think, you know, like you've mentioned, he, he, he went to COP in the RABA delegation this year, COP27. So we've got some good insights from him coming on his experiences there i think is his whole messaging around waste re waste reuse and resource use and waste mapping of sites is is in, insanely important uh ties into something we've been looking at really recently you know we've just published case studies on the uk green building council website for the reuse of school buildings in scotland so for me to learn from somebody who has so much experience as as duncan and, and to put some questions to him about how do we start to develop circular construction and, and circularity within our sector it's just an amazing opportunity to talk to him so super excited and let's get on and hear what he's got to say brilliant well let's get bring duncan on now hi duncan thanks for joining us it's a pleasure oliver i've been wanting to do this for a long time cheers mate um listen we usually kick this off with a little bit of background on on who you are your journey to to how you got where you are at the minute so tell us a little bit about yourself duncan and, and how you ended up doing what you're doing Okay, well, if you don't mind, I'm going to go quite a long way back because I've been passionate about environmental issues all my life. And when I was about eight years old, I was living in a place called Epping Forest or that area, which is sort of northeast London, West Essex on the sort of border there and on a, next to a farm and surrounded by woodlands and fields and stuff. And one afternoon I was walking in one of these fields up a hill on this lovely meadow and uh, I thought we were walking into more and more deeper sort of countryside. And when I got to the top of the hill, I just said to my mother, I pointed to some, I said, what's that? And what I could see was the NatWest Tower, like a hazy NatWest Nat Tower on the horizon. And uh, 
my mum just said, that's London. And I said, wow, you know, London's right next to us. And she said, well, yeah, and I don't know what else we said, but one thing she did say to me was she thought that one day the only natural world in the UK would be the nature, it would be nature reserves and national parks. And as an eight-year-old, hearing that was a bit sort of shocking. And then for the next five or 10 years, I watched first the M11 motorway and then the N25 sort of, I could see it because we we're up on a hill. We could see these motorways being built and we could see these things plowing through fields and countryside. And in fact, there's a junction between the M11 and the M25 called Passenford Bridge. And Passenford Bridge was where my grandfather proposed to my grandmother in about 1917, over 100 years ago. And that was a rural little bridge in some woodlands, which is now a motorway interchange. So I've always been aware of that, the fragility of the natural world. And uh, I had an, uh, an uncle who was an architect. And um, so I got pretty interested in that at about the same age. So if you'd met me as a 14 year old, I would have said I'd either wanted to be working for Greenpeace or working as an architect. And that was the sort of dilemma all the way through. And I did my degree part-time in London, uh, the London Met. And uh, so I was working for other architects. And in about 1988, I was working on a project where the second kitchen for this guy in London, we were working on his second kitchen and the second kitchen in 1988 was worth a hundred thousand pounds. And this wasn't a kitchen building. This is the fitting out of a kitchen, a bespoke kitchen. It was beautiful, but I just thought, what am I doing? So that was definitely a point where I thought I'm going to go and work for Greenpeace. And then I just thought I could do both. So I went down to Brighton to do my master's and focused on sustainable architecture in sort of 1990 to 92. And then after about a year, I was back up in London. Well, I was commuting from the South Coast to London, working for an architect called Rick Mather. And at the time, he was designing and building the largest low energy scheme in Europe, which was new student accommodation for the University of East Anglia, which was designed to get energy off the students. That's where it, that was the energy source. And I thought this was fantastic. Uh, I also thought it was fantastic because Rick didn't bang on about the environment all the time. It just sort of was implicit in his work, which I thought was quite clever. And um, then while I was working for Rick, I entered a an RIBA competition to design the off-grid house of the future which I we entered and with my then partner Ian McKay and I entered this competition and we won it and then because I I mean the headline was that students have won this open competition because we we be, beat a lot of qualified architects but really uh, one of the reasons we could do it and then built the thing is because I'd been working on and off for eight years so I knew what I was doing so we got that thing built and then we were able to set up our own practice in the 90s so by the end of the 90s, we were, we'd won quite a few competitions, like six or seven, including the competition for the Greenwich Millennium Village, because we were asked to be involved because we knew about sustainability, in inverted commas. So we spent the end of the 90s, early noughties, visioning what urban sustainability looked like. And then so we got involved with teaching as well. And you've got, you've got a fair few books under your belt, Duncan. Well, I've got I've got one book and I'm doing a one book called The Reuse Atlas, which was published in 2017 by the RIBA. And I'm I'm gonna have the second edition of that, which is much enlarged, which is good news, uh, for for 2023. So I'm excited about that. I mean, it's been delayed by over a year, mainly because it focuses on um 
uh, architectural projects that deal with closed loop systems and the circular economy. And the good news is there's so many more than there were in 2016, 17, when I did the first edition that it's been delayed because I just keep finding out about be bigger, better and uh, you know more inspiring projects. So that's that's great sort of growth area in the industry. Just sticking on the, the circularity in construction for a minute, that seems to be, especially to me, there's there's so many more things going on now in that circularity space. Is it something that you've noticed that it's that it's really ramping up and, and are you seeing more people approach you to discuss it and, and, and work on schemes that really focus on circularity? Yeah, I mean, I think I think uh, it's it's quite exciting that I think the UK is at the point now where there are lots of cities and towns adopting circular economy route maps. So they're putting them on board, you know, in place the uh, uh, the sort of guidelines to encourage a circular economy. And I know, for example, in London, there are feasibility studies at the moment looking at the sort of digital and physical infrastructure required to facilitate, for example, you know, a tower block in the uh, city of London being deconstructed rather than demolished, and that material being put out into the supply chain. What does it take to facilitate that? And um, you know, the other. The other issue is that you know that's exciting is in the Netherlands and uh, other European countries who, who are about five at least five years ahead of the UK, they're they're already doing this. So um yeah. What do you think the big what do you think the big sort of changes are going to be around circular construction? I think there's gonna be another thing, a number of things. Um I've been working on a number of projects because I sort of teach research and practice. And where research and practice and teaching crossover, I've done a number of projects, EU-funded projects, where we're working with people in Europe who are actually doing this thing. So whether it's uh, Rota DC or Bellastock or others who have these facilities um, that allow for deconstructed elements to be cleaned up, um, stored, and then put out into the supply chain. So for me, the challenges are get, understanding the infrastructure, digital and physical, that's required. How do you know about this secondhand stuff? How do you ensure its performance and warranties? That's the big, big deal. And so, what's really exciting is where, for example, in the UK, there's uh, you know a project which was a, a lend lease British land project where number one Triton Square, where they deconstructed the twenty year old facade, cleaned it up, and put it back up, improved with the warranties. And yeah, one of the reasons is the supply chain was still intact. The people that supplied the original facade are still going. So they were the people who were prepared to deconstruct, clean up, upgrade, and give it the warranties it needed. So, um, you know, I think there's, if you get those things right, you're all right. The other thing is, I think as designers, architects, um, you know, we know as te technical designers, the, the parts of a building that really needs to perform, whether it's for structure or fire or acoustics, compared with the bits that don't. And so we know where you need to have a warranty and a high level of performance and where you can let go of it. Martin, you put your hand up. I did, I did. Duncan, you describe yourself as an architect, an academic, an environmental activist and an author. And you know your new practice, Baker Brown Studios, you're also architects but also a consultancy do you see this as a sort of very much the changing role of an architect yeah i think it's what's really interesting is we're adapting to a, a, a sort of additional role and even responsibility you might add mm. um 
and a, a number of the architects that I interview who are delivering these uh, buildings addressing closed loop systems, they're having to do different things. So Rota, for example, started off as architects uh, and exhibition curators and are now focusing purely on providing advice on deconstruction and reuse to other design teams. So they've ditched the original architect's role but a number of uh, you know other architects called uh, CPZ, for example, who um, again based in the Netherlands, and they they designed and built uh, Amsterdam's largest court building, but it was a temporary building with a seven-year life, and they have just facilitated the deconstruction of that building and the rebuilding of it uh, on campus at a university. So in a way, I don't think that would have happened if those architects hadn't been in control of the design and the construction and the deconstruction process. So I think at the moment, it feels to me, I mean, I'm old enough to remember, you know, an emergent uh, high-tech uh, architecture scene where, uh, you know, you had architects like Michael and Patty Hopkins who had to buy, had to, you know, invest in their own uh, system build uh, factories to come up with those high-performing modular systems that they needed to do their high-tech buildings because they just weren't there. So I think we're in a similar situation at the moment where you've got some Pathfinder practices offering more until that is offered by others. The In terms of who's doing it well, Duncan, and, and I mean, let's start with countries first. You know, who, who do you think's absolutely nailing circularity in construction or at least that reusing, recycling scene? Well, for me, it, it is the Netherlands. And I do hear good things about the United States as well in terms of uh, facilitating deconstruction and the distribution of secondhand stuff across, um, you know, there's tax incentives in the United States, but I'm not so well informed there. But certainly in the Netherlands, we're at the point now where there's networks of companies that were demolition companies and are now deconstruction companies. And there's you know, a network across the uh, Netherlands um, so you can, you know, you can get any one of the countries wherever you are in it, sorry, companies wherever you are in the Netherlands to deconstruct a building rather than demolish it. And, you know, I know of a, a hospital complex, which is still standing, but up for deconstruction. The the, the demolition, deconstruction company's already gone in, done the 3D survey of the building, sort of digitally unpacked the thing, and you can buy the steel for the steel frame that is still housed in this hospital com complex. It's already for sale online. So those, you know, the understanding of where you need the physical sort of warehouses to store the stuff, but also cr crucially, the digital networks to raise awareness of the stuff existing and the exact specs of it that's that's there already so that's way ahead of the uk yeah it's a huge stimulus for a new economic model as well isn't it you know we all talk about supporting the developing circular economy but yeah it, it, it's massive so what does the uk need to do to, to to catch up i suppose i think it i think it's um needs to value the embodied carbon footprint of existing stuff existing buildings and if you fold that into whole life carbon descent plans that Letty and Ricks and other have given us, uh, that just needs to be in, in law. Bays need to fold that into building regulations. So I'm, you know, I'm really excited that we're, you know, there was a, a carbons, a whole life carbon emissions act debated recently in parliament. I don't, I don't know what the outcome, if there is one yet, but as soon as it becomes law for building our owners to 
declare the whole life carbon footprint of their buildings. Uh, we will value the embodied carbon in existing things. And uh, then I think the reuse of things will become uh, worth it because I would hope that out of that would come uh, subsidies for doing the whole life carbon, low, low whole life carbon option. Uh, and that would include um, uh, tax subsidies at the moment because as a lot of people know at the moment, for example, with VAT, it's zero rated on new build and it's put on, it's 20% on retrofit. So we're actively encouraged to demolish. So I think we've got to be actively encouraged to deconstruct and reuse. Now that will require legislation and encouragement in uh, from building control, building regulations, definitely. The, uh, just, I see Martin dying to jump in, but I've got one more thing to throw down, down towards you. In terms of stimulating retrofit and, and the retrofit space, particularly the non-domestic retrofit space, the, I know in Vancouver and our office out there, that there's, there's, a, there's a, a fee structure, a proposed fee structure, and actually the fee structure for retrofit is almost double that of a new build. And it just seems like a, a no-brainer in terms of attempting to incentivize the retrofit of buildings, but also making it worthwhile for practices. Yeah, and, I think I think um, the hit that clients are going to take initially, or what will appear to be a hit, is increased fees and increased investment, because the increased fees will re be reflected by the increased investment of understanding what the thing is you've got already, how it can be adapted, where it needs to just be retrofitted or deconstructed. So that whole sort of study is a lot more in-depth than the normal clear fell demolish the existing situation and then i've got oh i did one of these before boom here it is um so you know you've got to get really uh specific with the the understanding of the existing situation whether that's the carbon embedded carbon of it or the assets of it and i you know there are again this information we have we do have at our fingertips there are people measuring the sort of re the, the resources flowing in and out of cities and that includes the existing built environment, what what it's made of, and its potential to be reused, recycled, or whatever. So it's is a different sort of investigation at the beginning, and more in depth, I would say. But we'll get used to that. And so the the added investment in fees, the uh, the saving will be the fact that you won't be having to buy so much stuff to get the building uh, up and running as a sort of twenty first century low carbon climate resilient environment which is you know that's the issue we've got with non-domestic buildings at the moment well as well as domestic but with non-domestic the issue is the relevance you know how empty or not are they at the moment how uh, you know program wise we need to really quiz that and investigate that interrogate that to understand how to transform these half empty uh, commercial buildings into what you know they, they need to, and you know, that's why I say that we need our best design teams involved in retrofit, because retrofit isn't just external wall insulation and solar panels. It's the sort of, it's the adaptation of the built environment to be what it needs to be in a, an ever warming climate uh, with different, you know, we're working and living in different ways, very post-COVID in a, a very distinct way. You know, I was in London last week, it gets very busy, but it's also it's strange at you know, six o'clock at night coming from north down to south London on my own on a, um, uh, a underground train. Really? You know, it's just, it's still, it's still not as packed as it, it could be. And I, it's a lot of people 
still working from home, et cetera. So all of this adds up to a, a need to in, adapt the existing built environment rather than construct more brand new stuff. And I'm talking, this is UK centric. Yeah, yeah. I can see Martin dying there. Dying to jump in there, Martin. No, it's all right. I mean, Duncan, you're well known for your your work on the Waste House and also obviously the Reuse Atlas. But you know, you're also a massive advocate of natural building products as well. And you know, I know you're extremely experimental on some of your your projects, and you've done different research projects as well. Can you tell us some some of the sort of products and materials you're using at the moment? Yeah, well, I've been lucky enough over my career to have house in adverted commas projects that have tested different ideas so you know a number of years ago we did this project where we designed and construct constructed a house um it was on site for only six days and it was for example this one was testing how well we did not over 90 percent of the construction uh was made from uh, carbon locking organic materials so we proved that um a structure could be prefabricated, zero waste on site, pass- designed to passive house standards. It was actually the first A-plus rated dwelling in the UK, and 90% of it was fluffy, organic, sustainable materials. So that was earth, reeds, hemp, straw, uh, and timber products, and others. So um, it was just proving that this, and in fact, we did it in about 2008. And the idea behind it, one of the ideas was to prove you could do it, but also there was a rush to burn stuff. So there was, you know, it was actually green to burn logs in a uh, in a stove uh, because that you could say it was a carbon offset thing. And, you know, I'm a huge not fan of offsetting and net anything. So I was never a big fan of burning. So this was proving that we have these resources and actually i'm involved in a research project at the moment with the forestry commission where we're we're mapping the potential of woodlands in the southeast of the of england to supply timber products to the construction sector because we have a lot of standing sweet chestnut for example and so we've got these woodlands i mean where i was born epping forest shouldn't exist it starts in Morthamstow, you know, and the reason it exists is exists is because for 400 years it was a pollarded woodland, which means it they let the stems grow to sort of five or uh, trunks grow to five or six meters, and then the the boughs that grow off these hornbeams um, would, would create would be used for building ships, but they'd only chop them off at the top, so these things grow for ages. Um, so you know we've got we've got precedents of. Uh, so-called natural environments which are actually um you know human con- human uh, uh supported uh harvested environments but they create high levels of biodiversity so we're looking at that and you know we've done a lot of work with ram chalk rammed earth uh we and that's spun out of that spun projects um research projects where for example we looked at uh when we did the waste house which was another one of these house projects where Again, this time we uh, we diverted 55 tons of waste material, a lot of it from the construction sector, but other sort of plastic waste. We diverted it to a construction site on, on site at the University of Brighton. And this time we involved over 350 students and apprentices. And we, in a, one year, we, we built it on budget, on time. We built Europe's first permanent building made out of 90% again. Uh, waste material now that building performs to passive house standards creates 30 percent more energy than it consumes and it's made out of material other people threw away now within that it be- this building became a sort of vessel collecting 
products without an end of life strategy. So a lot of plastic stuff. Now, I don't want to demonize plastic, but I just want to say to humans, we need to understand what to do with it at its end of its first life. Yeah, you know, most plastic ever produced is still with us. So the Waste House, for example, collected 20,000 toothbrushes. And I'm not saying that we should be building with toothbrushes. I'm saying we shouldn't design plastic toothbrushes that in this case are never used. These are toothbrushes that are given to people on airliners. So the life cycle of these 25,000 toothbrushes, as it was actually, is that they were uh, you know, using a millions of years old fossil fuel turned into plastic, into toothbrushes, put on an airliner in New York, flown over the Atlantic to be incinerated in the southeast of England. Yeah. So this waste house, which is not a house, it's a two story teaching facility, has attracted other research projects. And one of our recent ones was find waste flows near the waste house to turn into uh, components and um, products for the construction sector. And the first one we found was um, was for insulation. And we and we just went to Beolia and said, what's your biggest uh, textile waste stream, at such a, which is a pain in the neck? And they said immediately bedding. And they just said, we get so much of it. If you think of Brighton, it's got two universities, loads of hotels. It's cheaper to buy a new single duvet in, in Brighton than it is for a student to get one washed. So we've just got all this bulky stuff. Now, we thought we were gonna find textiles that we would have to recycle into a product. We actually found the product because obviously duvets are insulation. So with the, the way the waste house is designed, we could take out a panel of the wall, one of the wall panels and put in the duvets and measure their uh, effectiveness. And of course, they're really good insulation. They're a fire hazard. So you have to sort of put your fireproof layers each side, but that's not a problem. Can you link uh, the um, TOG to the U-value? Uh, e yeah, no, exactly. You just thought, oh, I've got a four-ton duvet. Wow, here we go. So we played around with that. And, you know, some of the duvets had feathers in. So we were using some of the feathers to reinforce clay plasters and all this sort of stuff. So we lots of things came out of it. And one of the other pro um, products that came out of the Waste House uh, experiment there was that we found a local restaurant uh, threw away 55,000 oyster shells a year. So we, t we processed those oyster shells, recycled those oyster shells into concrete tiles. So part of the facade of the waste house has got these concrete tiles. Both those bits of work have impacted real projects. So the duvets are now reprocessed by a company. You can now buy waste duvet insulation. So I'm quite proud of that because that was our initial investigation. The only thing I don't like about it is it was a, a reuse project and it's become a recycle thing. So re when if you recycle, you you create pollution, you use energy. So I'm really big on reuse rather than recycling, but the oyster shells into these beautiful tiles is a great thing. And now there are other buildings, you know, being built at the moment, made out of spoil from the site, et cetera. So we, I think we're having lots of impact. Yes, Martin, sorry. That's all right. No, um, you know, we've had, you know, we've had Bill Dunster on here. We've had Tom um, Morley. You know, and now yourself, and you're talking about you know exemplar projects achieving these things back in you know early 2000, and we're now in 2022, and we're not doing it at scale. What what's holding us back? Well, I don't think much is now because I think it, the reason we did the waste house was to because at the at the time for every five houses built, there was one house worth of waste flying away from that way, uh, construction site. So 20% of everything arriving on the site um, was being thrown away. And I just don't think anyone can afford to do that now. So I think the, the, the good news out of the current illegal war 
and post-COVID and climate emergency is that everybody's thinking about the lack of resource security and how to save resources, whether it's energy or steel or glass or whatever. So I think a lot of people are trying to get their head around reuse and adapt and adaption of the existing built environment. So when we did the waste house in 2014, um, it was an interesting project, but it was still the construction sector is still cheaper to throw materials and components at a building to keep site to keep it active rather than having your plasterers not doing hill on a Friday afternoon because you run out of plaster. It's better to throw gallons of the stuff in at skip at the end of four o'clock on a Friday than it is to have plasterers. So uh, not doing anything. So I think that's changing because the price, the cost of materials has gone up so much. However, from the point of view of what government can do to help that at the moment, just worldwide, um, labor's taxed too much. Uh, you know, it's too much tax associated with labor and not in a way, not enough on the materials. So I think if we there are ways in which uh, tax law could enable uh, closed loop systems and then they and because basically if you're reusing something there is more labor on that thing um so um yeah i think we need some incentives to allow for the labor required to transform existing things into new things so when you get a project through duncan that's um you know you, you think right this is going to be a absolute cracker for yeah. reuse i I'm just mindful of all of the young architects out there that are working in different practices and thinking, do you know what? I'm really into this, but where do I start? You know, what are your sort of headlines for the way that you attack a reuse project? Okay. Well, I'll talk personally first, and then I'll say what I think other people should do. You get, if, if you're writing the specification for a building, if you've got that opportunity, um, and a lot of architects do and engineers, just think in terms of, uh, if it's a new build, how to make this building a material store for the future. So just try and avoid sticking stuff together. So I would say, you know, and I've said this before, I would, from the point of view of Passive House, I would prefer a slightly more leaky building, which is one that can be deconstructed. And the Passive House Trust would say, yeah, the, their details don't require things to be stuck together. So if you do it properly, Passive House Trust way, you're fine. But we know that to achieve the sort of airtightness on some new build buildings, or a lot of them, there's a lot of that uh, expanding foam that's used to seal gaps. Now, if you talk to Rota, for example, who are having to deconstruct buildings that are only five or 10 years old sometimes, it's that, um, it's that expanded foam that really gets in the way of good deconstruction. So think if you've got new build, <clears throat> think about bolting it together on sticking it together but also just think of the where materials come from and what and what's their end of life strategy so it's thinking about the uh, social and environmental damage done by the specification of one plaster type over another so there's quite a lot of learning to do but what what also we should do and this is what we do as a practice is is do what we call a um, a resource map so we look at what's on the site at the moment from a point of view of physical resources that might be the, the building or stuff lying around on site that we can reuse but then there's the sort of natural resources so um you know whether it's uh, uh, energy from the sun or geothermal or whatever it is but it's also human resources and networks so it's really doing your site analysis well and understanding what's there what can you work with which is on site once you've done everything you can on site it's what's locally and then what's regionally 
And then after that, if you still need stuff, you're buying in from elsewhere. But you know, for example, at the moment, Brighton Hope City Council, have, they have a circular economy route map. They have a 60 house scheme on site in the middle of Port Slade at the moment, where they made the decision to uh, impose closed loop circular design brief on the project. And the structural engineers have gone for a, a steel frame that's bolted together rather than a ubiquitous in situ cast concrete deck, wall, frame, whatever. And that's a huge difference. Yeah, actually from a spec route, you know, it's just grabbing a different bit of the spec writer. It's really easy. And so some people don't realize the impact of very straightforward, uh, high level decisions, I'd say. I mean, you know, for me, I don't like getting bogged down in the sort of different ways to do high, whole life carbon comp, uh, calculations. You know, at the moment we're in a situation and I'm not digressing here, I'm saying in terms of an architect, you know, at the moment, the Marks and Spencer's project in the in Oxford Street, you've got whole life carbon calculations that prove it. The best thing to do is to demolish it. You've got whole life carbon calculations that prove the best thing to do is to retrofit it. One of them's wrong, but, you know, work it out. Let's get a consensus. But I'm not going to be part of that conversation. I just know that if we reduce the amount that we consume during the design and construction and habitation maintenance and deconstruction of that building, we're going to be doing the right thing. Now, I would also say there is lo there's loads of guidelines out there. Uh, so if you're a student, I'd get involved with the Architects Climate Action Network. They, they've got a network of uh, um, student groups that they plug into. They're doing lots of um, work. I'd also say have a look at my book because there's loads of case studies. <laughs> and there are other books on the circular economy. Uh, so I would check those out, but it really is about, you know, if it's in the existing situation, reuse before you recycle, before you buy new stuff. And the bottom, bottom line is just to reduce the consumption of stuff. So for example, if you're on a design and it requires a design team, an international design team to fly around the world all the time, you know, that's, that's dumb compared with local knowledge and also you know the, the reduced carbon footprint of not traveling it's rather basic stuff then right by this by the way then you can look at letty and they give you a whole life carbon descent plan so you know what the embodied carbon footprint should be of a building of whatever type you know and the operational carbon subscribe to that but then it's up to you as a designer to come up with your solutions to those benchmarks I'm definitely, you know, I would not say don't use plastic or only use earth. I mean, there are reasons for using one material over the other, but just, you know, for example, with concrete, all I would say there is don't use so much of it. We It's ubiquitous at the moment. It's below ground, above ground everywhere, and we're just using too much. So if we can just use it where it does the job that nothing else can do as well, okay. But um, yeah, I you know, there's, there's um, just reduce. You're right there, matey. It's good advice, Duncan. Sorry, I was mute in there while I was sneezing my head off. <laughs> it would have got it would have gone unnoticed, Duncan. The um I think it's it's really critical advice at the minute. I mean, we're coming across this on so many projects on a daily basis, and we're and we're working with local authorities and and governments as well at the at the same rate who are trying to figure it out. And it's just for me, it's a really, really exciting space to to be in at the moment. Um I I think we're all learning lessons and around material certification and testing. It seems like you guys have quite a lot of experience in trying to get things over the line, trying to get things tested. Is, is that a barrier for you? 
Yeah, I I mean, for example, we are we're built we're at the moment we're creating low carbon concrete sills out of waste material from sites, and we're having to get those sill window sills and door sills um, tested, and they've just been tested. But we have to find a laboratory that will test them because when we're, we're not going to the normal prefabricated concrete sill company, we're actually making them out of site waste. So yeah, there are there are extra barriers that we have to. Um, uh, jump through but so I think soon that's that's all going to change because there's so I just think the different things are aligning whether it's you know government law um, let, which will create legislation which will inform building regulations which will make re the reduction of, of and in consumption of stuff attractive by the way we're not talking about making less money we're not talking about less work in fact we're talking about more work the sort of opportunities associated with uh moving our construction and sector and built environment forward in a low carbon climate resilient way is a huge opportunity yeah. and i think a lot of people are seeing that local authorities who declared a climate emergency and then declared that they're going to be net zero carbon by 2030 these people are really keen for answers i mean we're in a situation this year earlier this year there was a white paper commissioned by the Corporation of London, you know, the City of London, saying basically what is the most uh, authentic whole life carbon calculation method? And can we impose that approved method on uh, for, for anyone doing a pre-app in the City of London? I mean, that's, that's in effect the client saying, tell us how to do it properly. We want to do it properly. We don't, you know, if we're putting up a scheme, we don't want all that bad negative publicity of everyone laughing at us show it saying you dinosaurs doing it the wrong way so i think we're at a point where people want to know the best way of doing it the reality in my opinion at the moment with whole life carbon is it's got to be the wild west out there when when there's totally different ways of you know um supporting well sorry you know supposedly one methodology that supports totally different strategies um so i think we've got to just sort of agree a, a way of moving forward an established way of doing things and uh yeah then you know make the most of all the sort of green jobs uh, and opportunities that will come out of that and i think across the sector um people understand that now huge amount yeah. of employment the i i so are you going to tell us a little bit about this very special round table you've hosted recently duncan <laughs> what uh what a cop 27 there we go. Tell us a little <laughs> bit about. Uh, tell us a little bit about. Yeah, well, well, I, did, first, I mean, the I, highlights from COP twenty seven. Yeah, well, and a bit about for, the roundtable. Thanks for reminding me about that, Oliver. No, um, yeah, no, I I was lucky enough to be um, invited by the RIBA to co go to COP twenty seven, along with uh, Smith Mordak of Bureau Hapold, and also lucky enough, we went to the second week. And we had at least two events a day that we spoke at or took part in. And um, most of those were at um, the Buildings Pavilion, which was um, hosted by the global ABC. And what was interesting is that the, the built environment was only discussed at the COP26 in Glasgow. And that was the first time it had a, a presence. And what was really exciting this time is that there was a, a lot a lot of people a lot of different organizations discussing this idea about uh, climate resilience and whole life carbon so it was really interesting that you know, during while we're talking about it at cop 
the whole Marks and Spencer's thing was was uh, coming to a head in the UK. But what was really interesting for me was that it looked like something was happening and able to happen because um, the UN are acknowledging that the built environment has a big impact and potentially could have a positive impact. One of the big questions is how can the building sector go to the United Nations with a consensus of what to do around the world, even though obviously there was a lot of talk about the fact that the global north has had a lot of fun developing and creating um, you know, the, the climate emergency that we're in now and the global south are suffering. So broadly speaking, we're looking at how can the global north stop consuming so much and let the global south build the housing it needs, et cetera, in a sort of, you know, using local vernacular uh, uh, techniques. So it's not, we're not exporting materials all around the world. But what was really exciting, I think, was the fact that there was this idea of a, um, a breakthrough agenda, a buildings breakthrough. And this was the phrase used um, by UN, UN and global ABC people. And on the last day, which was the Thursday, uh, of COP27 for the built environment pavilion. Obviously, COP went on for another couple of days. But um, there was this idea of this, there was this announcement around this building's breakthrough. The year before, there'd been a, a breakthrough um, agenda, which was didn't involve buildings. It was to do with infrastructure and projects for dams and things like that. But this is the more smaller scale built environment that we all understand. And the building's breakthrough announced this idea of a near zero emission and resilient buildings to make sure that these this idea of near zero and uh, building resilience, climate, climate resilience, would be the new normal for um, 2030. And for me, I was excited because they weren't using net zero. For me, near zero, and there's a lot of debate on what near zero means let people get on with that. But near zero, we can't be zero carbon. You know, we've got to, if we're building something, we can't be zero carbon, not at the moment. And near zero just sounds a lot more authentic. That sounds like you understand or one understands what the challenges are, where net zero, we all know, means a, uh, uh, means a, a deal. Now, the big deal was that there was a call for the construction sector around the world to establish benchmarks for near, near zero. And then we can go to the UN and say, this is what we think. Now, the precedent for doing that was with the um, Clean Oceans Alliance, or sorry, that's not exactly what they're called, but basically there's an, a, a global oceans alliance that that have, they understand what good looks like to clean up our oceans, make them more biodiverse, wherever the ocean is. And that's what we need as an industry. We've really got to very quickly get a consensus of what good looks like, because at the moment, we don't. It's open season. And at the moment, you've got if at one level, you've got old school sustainability people just saying it's got to be a bit, it's got to be green. What does that mean? You know, it's all vague. We've got to get very precise. Now is the time to get precise. And we have the data to do that. But that then folds back to parochial things in the built environment in the UK and around the world, which is post-occupancy evaluation, for example. We've got to major on that so we know what good looks like. A couple of weeks ago, I was in a very well-known office building in the middle of London that when it was built not that long ago, a decade ago, was billed as the greenest office in London. It was proudly displaying its EPCE rating. And I'm not going to say what it was, but, you know, if, if that was published, 
you know, if 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 we, we've got to somehow publish our failures, we, you know, as everybody knows, we only learn from our failures, not our successes. Is this not though? You know, who takes the lead on this is is what comes to my mind. And, and is I think also... government does. I think really we can sort it out with building control. At one level, it's got to be, you know, it's it's got to be enshrined in law that you uh, whole life carbon figures have got to be calculated, authenticated. By the way, you get better ta tax breaks for your project if you can prove that it's designed to these standards. But then you get a really good break if after three years of POE, you've proved that it's uh, it's doing what it should be doing in terms of operational. So um, I, I think it's it's got to be central government. And in a way, I think I, I the, all the different areas I sort of know a bit about in terms of investigations by uh, by central government i'm thinking it's going to come together in, in quite a good way there'll be laws around this pretty soon and incentives because they can they'll finally see the potential for jobs uh and therefore you know if, if the current is it current language leveling up <laughs> you know retrofitting the built environment is a, a national infrastructure project and the skills and wealth generation of of um, retrofit is is enormous. So lending people some money to get it going is it only makes a lot of sense now. And I think we're all seeing that. So the buildings breakthrough was one of the big the big highlights for you of COP twenty seven. Then into yeah, that and actually on the ground. I mean, uh, I think a lot of people were disappointed with COP twenty seven. I mean, there was the uh, reparation fund that was announced, and after that, it was. You know, poor old Alok Sharma pointing out the three points of around uh, the consumption of, uh, of fossil fuels that were agreed last COP, which were struck off this uh, this COP. But what was on the ground was a, a a lot of understanding of what needs to happen. I mean, this COP twenty seven was vast, and it was just so much understanding and cross fertilization of ideas and an understanding of, uh, for example, I mean, uh, this time. Um, I wasn't at COP26, but you know, people, activists and protesters, they were everywhere. They were across the whole floor. So our buildings pavilion was often interrupted by, uh, you know, groups of uh, people from the Amazon rainforest who, you know, in their in their um, uh, in their full headdresses, etc., making quite a lot of noise and singing very loudly and dancing and shaking the place up. There was no avoiding them, and they were excited because their current president-elect of Brazil was coming and of course he's made it known very loudly that he wants to stop the deforestation of their home and well the lungs of the planet so there I think there's a lot of positive stuff going on and but you know the reality is that there's a lot of people very frightened of what's going on as well and I think that's when you'll get the action and people coming together so there's you know the global south are really grouping together to say we will not be put up we will not put up with you guys having fun at our expense and that was very loud i guess we're getting close to the end of our time having you having you on the show duncan so it'd be really good to just ask you the sort of the similar question that we put to everybody that joins us is when you envision a, a future that you really want to happen what does that look like what is that future that you are desperate to see um 
I'm the future I'm def desperate to see is the, the human world uh, remember it, remembering it's part of the natural world and working in harmony with it and at, at, at that very high level. And, you know, now there's so many of us, um, 8 billion people, that means making cities work because we can't all go suburban or rural. It's just too many of us. So I'm not into the mass extermination of humans to get this down to the half a billion or whatever uh, that would be sustainable at that level. We've got to make cities work. So cities have to be delightful, low carbon, climate resilient places to live in, but they also have to be places where we can have, uh, you know, uh, open green spaces that are also providing us with food, clean air uh, and biodiversity. And I believe that can happen because we act, we in the UK accidentally supported a, a very rich biodiverse environment after the Romans left. The Romans left a really depleted landscape. And then for a thousand years, because we were all very small peasant farmers, all needed some water, some nuts and berries, some meat and what have you. We created this patchwork rich environment that supported lots of species. And it was only with the Enclosure Act in the 17th century that the spe these species started to get deliberately wiped out. We've done it before. We can have that rich sort of carpet tapestry uh, environment across the UK, which includes our built environments. Our built environments can sustain biodiverse environments. And that's what it looks like in the future, the near future. That takes us nicely all the way back to your original story about yeah. how you sort of got into where you are now. So I think that's a really nice point to to end on, Duncan. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Cheers, Duncan. mate. Oliver, amazing to hear from Duncan then. I think we could have spoke to him for probably two or three hours easily. I have another list of about 30 questions to put to Duncan. I think he's going to have to be a re return guest, Mon. I think you're right. I mean, he touched on so many big issues. You know, we've talked about reuse. Uh, we talk about buildings as material banks. Um, are you seeing this now, you know, in your work? Are you seeing this now being demanded at a client level? Or is this a sort of an ethical perspective from, from an architect? Certainly not coming through as much as I feel it should be at a client level at the moment. But what is happening is this, you know, there, there are smaller projects, um, like the projects that Duncan works on, that are absolute trailblazers, like total pioneers in the use of this stuff. I mean, some of the stuff that we talked about in the podcast, the, the fact that he's using duvets as wall insulation and that he's using thousands and thousands of toothbrushes and reusing them. And his whole ethos around the reuse of materials the reason why it doesn't get as much traction as it should is because we've got, I mean, to some extent, rightly so, a really, really hefty testing certification standards to get through. But that often puts people off just trying. And the reason why I've got so much admiration for Duncan and the work that Duncan does is because he's just always pushing boundaries, testing things, saying, look, let, let's go and find a really big waste stream near this site and let's figure out how we can use it and let's just stick it in a building and yeah we've got to monitor it and we've got to make sure that it's but let's test it in, in situ and i think we need to get a lot more comfortable as an industry of testing things on demonstrators in situ you know we've, we've got loads of incredibly intelligent scientists so let's start testing things in situ in place on projects just the way Duncan does so that we can accelerate the the adoption of some of these waste streams into our into our new builds I couldn't agree more and I think it's a common thing we talk about almost every week it's just about how can we scale these solutions and you know and because 
the solutions are out there. We just need to find the ones that can scale and scale fast as well. Um, and, you know, we've talked, probably everyone we've brought on here about the, you know, how regulations and red tape can slow some of that down. So I think, you know, there needs to be a big advancements in the industry and, and taking action that way. I, there's, there's a few things on bits Duncan touched on, like this preference to reuse over recycle, totally with him on that. I think an, an area that's really exciting, and we've talked to a load of these different companies on the podcast, is the reuse depending whether you want to call it reuse or recycling, but the use of waste materials in new advanced materials. Um, I, I think that's an area where it will scale. You know, the actually picking up waste streams that are in existence, unless there's some really robust certification, testing, quality assurance around them and using them in our buildings is only really going to be applicable on a small scale for the time being. But the developing economy, the economic pressure to do these things, the pressure on in terms of ESG goals and the pressure from outside of our industry is, is only building. So the, the work of Duncan, um, the focus on circularity and construction is something that we we're just going to see increase and increase and increase. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. I mentioned this in our um, in our intro, but we're very privileged to have Duncan this year on our seminar program, and he's actually doing a 45-minute masterclass um, around all of the issues that he discussed um, today. So look forward to that. That's going to be a good one. Just launched a seminar program as well. Um, we need to sort out what you're talking about, actually. That's uh, we'll, we'll talk about that separately. We've got we've got too much to talk about. <laughs> well, the good news is actually we've got a whole zone called Future X this year, which is all about innovation. So that's exciting. I feel like you've just dropped the bomb there, Martin. You just, you just dropped an absolute bomb on the podcast. <laughs> We'll be doing a whole probably podcast series around it, but we'll we'll have a lot of the people actually we've been talking to on this series um, at the show, and um, you know these listeners who want to come and meet you can meet you live at that the show. Well, as well. Let's, let's 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 pick up the uh, the highlights of this new FutureX Innovation Zone the show in a in another pod, but no, that's a good teaser. I like that. Let's leave it yes. on that. It is. Well, anyway, if you've enjoyed this episode, please like and share. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks with another uh, episode of FutureX. Join our community to stay up to date with all things FutureX. Visit futurebuild.co.uk to sign up. Please also like them and share them to help grow our community. You can subscribe to the podcasts within your favourite podcast platform. Thanks so much for listening and we hope you'll be back again soon.